This is Truth With Grace, the media ministry of Grace Baptist Church. We're so pleased you've joined us today as we continue our exploration of the truth found in God's Word and the grace of salvation. Pastor Pierosa is continuing his preaching through the Gospel of Matthew, and today we're beginning chapter 12. Our culture has never been more confused about religion. Many people treat the matter like an all-you-can-eat buffet. They pick and choose whatever suits them according to their needs and desires. And if you don't like what you find in the marketplace of religion, it's no problem. You just make up your own, borrowing your favorite ideas and practices. Jesus was very clear on what true religion really was, where it could be found, and how it was to be practiced. So today, we'll discover if you are truly religious or not. My name is Brian Schmidt, and I'll have more information for you at the end of this program. But for now, let's listen to today's message from Pastor Pierre. So follow along with me if you have your Bibles. Matthew 12, verses 1 through 8. At that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath, and his disciples became hungry and began to pick the heads of grain and eat. Now when the Pharisees saw this, they said to him, Look, your disciples are doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. But he said to them, Have you not read what David did when he became hungry? He and his companions, how he entered the house of God and they ate the consecrated bread, which was not lawful for him to eat, not for those with him, but for the priests alone? Or have you not read in the law that on the Sabbath the priests in the temple violate the Sabbath and yet are innocent? But I say to you that something greater than the temple is here. But if you had known what this means, I desire compassion rather than sacrifice, you would not have condemned the innocent. For the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. And uh, with that last sentence, he infuriated his opponents here. We'll see why. Because again, he is giving his perspective on true religion. And by the way, his perspective on true religion is the truth. Why? Because Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. So truth is really a person. His name is Christ. And the one who is the truth is telling us the truth about what it means to have a true, meaningful, correct relationship with the Father. So in Jesus' perspective on true religion, we're going to look at the question of compliance, the question of compassion, and the question of comprehension. So let's go through those three because they're in the text. First of all, the question of compliance, verses 1 through 2. After recording Jesus' invitation to the heavy laden, the end of chapter 11, Matthew demonstrates the type of burden that these guys placed on their followers. And by recording the accusatory tone of Christ's opponents here, the gospel writer demonstrates Israel's gradual rejection of the Messiah. It'll be more evident, obviously, towards the end of the gospel because it'll result in their calls for the crucifixion of Christ. But of course, we know that the cross was not God's second plan or plan B. It was God's predetermined plan, and so was Israel's rejection of Christ. Paul says this in Romans 9, 10, and 11. Those three chapters, he talks about it was God's predetermined plan for the Jews to reject Christ on a national scale so that the gospel can be proclaimed to the Gentiles. So nothing there is catching God by surprise. Nothing is catching Jesus by surprise. There is no oops in God's dictionary. The former tax collector here, Matthew, demonstrates here that heart-heartening in that particular scene. And I want you to see that. That's the question of compliance because this is what they're all about. Compliance. Your disciples are not complying with the law of Moses. 
Well, the problem was they had a wrong view of the law of Moses because the Sabbath was a ceremonial observance, not a moral one. Now, Jesus may have led the disciples to the grain fields on purpose, deliberately on the Sabbath, so that they would witness that interaction with Jesus and the Pharisees, or perhaps the Pharisees followed Jesus and the disciples from a distance because in their minds, they were already violating the Sabbath by traveling, you see? Now, here's what the law says for the nation of Israel so that we're clear. Follow along with me, Exodus 20, verses 8 through 11, concerning the Sabbath. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath of the Lord your God. In it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male or your female servant or your cattle or your sojourner who stays with you. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and what is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Again, very clearly here, church, this is a ceremonial observance here. And this is the fourth commandment of the Ten Commandments, if you will remember, while the other commandments are moral. But the Pharisees turned this one into something that God never intended. According to their view, the disciples were doing work on the Sabbath because by collecting the grain, they were, according to the Pharisees, they were reaping, threshing, and winnowing. But again, that is a purposeful manipulation of what that law was. They failed to realize that honoring the Sabbath does not mean, church, bypassing human needs. That is why Matthew says the disciples became hungry. Well, God never intended for people to keep the Sabbath and and bypass human needs. The law allowed for gleaning. You may remember that from the book of Ruth. What the law forbade was work for profit on the Sabbath. So the Pharisaical system focused on misdirected compliance. You see, outwardly focused compliance because it elevated the approval of men over the approval of God. See, it's a lot easier to demonstrate a facade. It's a lot easier to hide the real intentions of your heart. And that is what that false religion is all about. That is why they were so focused on outwardly compliance with what they believed to be the Mosaic Law. But the problem was, church, they added to the Bible. They added the rabbinical tradition to the Bible. And and unfortunately, many people do it today too. As a result of them adding stuff to the Word of God, the people of that time to follow their system became burdened and heavy laden. That is why Christ tells them, come to me and I'll give you rest. Why? Because my yoke is easy and my burden is light, meaning come to me by grace and you will be saved. You don't have to perform. Think about this, church. If you have to perform to God in order to earn his favor, we're all doomed. Now, let's understand human nature a little bit here. No one enjoys being an outcast. No one likes to be outside of the club. We treasure our social circles so much that we hesitate violating the norms of these groups, which usually have both written and unwritten rules, right? So that's the reason people join gangs. That's the reason people join political parties, fan clubs, cults, or even churches. I want to belong. We want to, we want to be part of the group. Now, there's nothing wrong with compliance, as long as they don't violate scriptures, of course. But God expects us to comply with His word not with people's corruption of his laws. However, the type of compliance that honors him flows from a converted heart. Every religion that leaves the heart untouched is a false religion. Only biblical Christianity looks at the heart to transform the heart because of the power of the gospel to transform the heart. Otherwise, church, all we're doing is engaging in behavior modification. And God is not into behavior modification. God is into heart transformation. 
And that's why we're talking about the question of compliance here. True compliance with God's standard comes from a, it flows from a heart of gratitude for so great a salvation that we have. So behavior modification preaches correctly. Don't murder. But heart transformation places the command where it should be in its rightful place and reminds us to leave our offering there before the altar and go first be reconciled to your brother and then come out and present your offering. You see, behavior modification says don't pull the trigger, don't stick the knife. But heart transformation says go a step further than that and seek reconciliation with someone who has something against you. But you can only do that if your heart has been transformed by the power of the gospel, if you have been reconciled to God. Behavior modification demands correctly. Don't engage in the act of adultery. But only heart transformation allows us to watch over our hearts with all diligence, for from it flows the spring of life. Proverbs 4, verse 23. Therefore, church, when we're talking about the question of compliance, true religion demands heart transformation before behavior modification. You see, heart transformation will produce behavior modification. But if we focus on the outward facade, on behavior transformation, and leave the heart untouched, unconverted, then we're not engaged in what God wants us to be and to do. So after the religious elite of that time raised the question of compliance to Jesus, now he addresses the question of compassion. Verses 3 through 7, he corrects the Pharisees' wrong view of true religion. Now, notice the sarcasm of Christ here. By, by asking them if they read the law, he is using sarcasm in church. I know all of us like to use sarcasm, but let me remind you, this is divine sarcasm, okay? When he says, have you not read? Well, the Pharisees and the scribes, and all, they claim to be scholars of the Old Testament. Of course they've read. But what Jesus is saying, well, you may have read it, but it didn't sink in. It didn't make it to the, your untransformed or unconverted heart. Have you not read? Again, they attached rabbinical teachings to Scripture, which is the pinnacle of human arrogance. Because when you do that, you're telling God, you haven't done a good job. People need my help to understand what you've said in your word. You're not clear. You need my intervention. Can you think of anything more arrogant than that? So Jesus offers four observations to them concerning the question of compassion. And I want you to see, first of all, that he offers the illustration from history. Verses 3 through 4, he goes back to the story of David in 1 Samuel 21, verses 1 through 6, when David arrived hungry at the tabernacle after fleeing from King Saul. You may be familiar with that story. A guy by the name of Ahimelech gave him consecrated bread reserved for the priests only. And then if you like the reference to that, it's Leviticus 24, verse 9. Now, this event may have taken place on a Sabbath. We're not sure. The Bible doesn't tell us. But we have a hint because if you go back to that story of 1 Samuel 21, verses 1 through 6, you'll see that the consecrated bread had just been changed. Okay, That was one of the functions of the priests, to change the consecrated bread and by quoting this anecdote from the history of Israel, Jesus teaches them that God never intended for the ceremonial law to become a moral law. In other words, preserving the life of the man after God's own heart who would become king was God's design to fulfill his purposes. Therefore, what Jesus is doing by proposing this illustration from history, he gives his opponents an opportunity to see the foolishness of their ways. Again, he is demonstrating compassion by rebuking them, by being sarcastic with them. The confrontation has a purpose here, and it's not for Jesus to win the argument, because that's the easiest thing for the creator of the world, for the creator of logic and language to do, to win the argument. 
He wants their hearts to be transformed. He wants them to abandon their false religion and embrace the true religion, which is through Christ. They were furious because according to their standards, the disciples violated the clause of compliance. And Jesus says, no, no, no. Let's talk about compassion first. So Jesus offers the Pharisees here, the members of this false religion, the illustration from history. But also, after doing that, he offers the lesson from tradition. Verse 5. Now, once again, he uses sarcasm to drive the point. Have you not read? Or are you not familiar with the book you claim to be an expert on? And the point he wants to make here is to show them a a basic feature of true religion compared to false religion, a service to God and to people. That is why he's using the examples of the priests here who would serve God and would serve people. They were stationed in the temple and they worked on the Sabbath. You see, and Jesus says they broke the Sabbath and yet they are innocent. And Jesus is saying here, your laws, your additions to Scripture have nothing to do with what God intended to do. They broke the Pharisaical tradition, but they didn't break God's law. Why? Because they were serving in the temple. Their job was to serve on the Sabbath, both God and people. And church, let me ask you a question along those same lines in terms of application. Would you refuse to share the gospel with someone when you're on a vacation on a cruise? Just because it's your time of rest? Of course not. Or would you fail to to meet someone's need if you can? Just because you're on a road trip? No, I'm on vacation from being a Christian today. I'm not going to do that. No, you wouldn't do that because that is not true religion. That is not true compassion. That is focusing on compliance. According to the Pharisaical teaching that we're dealing with here, these priests would have violated the Sabbath every week because their ministry required work. For example, they had to change the consecrated bread. That's in Leviticus 24, verses 5 through 8. That's work. They had to offer the double burnt offering. That's a lot of work. That's in Numbers 28, verses 9 through 10. And yet, Jesus says they are innocent. They're innocent from your accusations, he says. They're innocent from the burden that you're placing on them. They're innocent in my book, and that's what counts, because they're after my approval. You see? And automatically, Jesus points out his opponent's wrong application of the law. In church, the lesson then for us today, according to the the lesson from tradition here that Jesus offers, is this. True religion never elevates ceremony over compassion. Don't ever forget this. True religion never elevates ceremony over compassion. You will never get a lecture from me if you miss church because you're helping out somebody that is in need and that's going to create an opportunity to share the gospel. Now, don't do that every Sunday. I'm going to start being skeptical. If every Sunday you're saying, oh, pastor, I skipped church today because if that's every Sunday, then perhaps someone else can help you help that person. But after offering the illustration from history and the lesson from tradition, Jesus now offers an affirmation from God. That's in verse 6. When Jesus says, I say to you that something greater than the temple is here. Now again, he shocked his listeners. You're talking about something greater than the temple. Now their annoyance at this time would have turned into hatred and fury because, church, that temple represented the very presence of God among the people. Religiously speaking, for them, nothing was more sacred than that building. Now, even today, Orthodox Jews revere the remainder of a temple in the Wailing Wall or the Western Wall in Jerusalem. But in the prologue of his gospel, John makes it very clear that God made his dwelling 
among the people. He tabernacled. That's the verb he uses there in the prologue of the gospel. He tabernacled with the people, pitched his tent among us. So Christ is God's presence among the people. So Jesus is making a very true statement here. Something greater than the temple is here. Why? The king is here. But you say, Pastor, why is he saying something is not someone? Because possibly he's referring to the kingdom of heaven that he is bringing. See, Christ's message was from the beginning of the gospel of Matthew. And the same message that John the Baptist preached, the kingdom of God is at hand. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. And that is something that is greater than the temple. Why? Because the king is here. The very king of the universe. And that's why Jesus is saying, that's the affirmation from God. The king is here. And he is greater than the temple. And friends, true religion recognizes the affirmation from Christ and embraces the God-man, the Son of God, God the Son, the majestic Savior. He's not just greater. He is the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. He is the one who is, who was, and is to come. See, true religion embraces that. True religion has no problem affirming that. But the Pharisees were furious with that statement, and you will see that in the remainder of the chapter. That's one of the reasons why they wanted to kill Jesus. In a way, he's making himself to be equal with God. Well, he was equal with God. He is equal with God. So after offering the illustration from history, the lesson from tradition, the affirmation from God, Jesus now offers the clarification from Scripture. Verse 7. Again, we're talking about the question of compassion here. And he's using all of these techniques to get him to understand that they were engaged in a false system. They needed salvation. They heard from the mouth of the very one who's greater than the temple. Jesus is here. Now, he exposes the Pharisees' misunderstanding of a basic principle, which clarifies God's expectation from his people. This is not the first time that Jesus quotes Hosea 6, verse 6. See, if you go to Matthew 9, verse 13, you will see the same thing. Jesus quoting that passage from the Old Testament. Again, church, these are the people who claim to be scholars. They should have known what that verse meant, but they failed to understand that. And that is why Jesus is offering a clarification from Scripture here in verse 7. If you had known what this means, implies that they did not know what that meant. Why? Because their hearts were unconverted. Their hearts were untouched by the transforming power of God because they were so focused on taking care of the front porch that they left the kitchen uncleaned. Now Christ rebukes his opponents who performed all the outward rituals while their hearts remained unconverted. If their hearts would have been converted, they would have understood that the disciples violated nothing concerning the law or by picking the grain in the fields and eating. Let me prove that to you. Deuteronomy 23 verses 24 to 25 says this, when you enter your neighbor's vineyard, You may eat grapes until you are satisfied, but you are not to put any in your basket. In other words, you are allowed to go and eat and satisfy your needs, but not to take anything. There's no to-go for those things. When you enter your neighbor's standing grain, you may pluck the heads of grain with your hand, but you are not to use a sickle on your neighbor's standing grain. In other words, you're not going to harvest your neighbor's field, but you are allowed to eat to satisfy your need of that moment because that is God's provision for you. And thus, church, the disciples violated nothing about the Old Testament, but they have violated every clause of human-made man-made, pharisaical, hypocritical, outwardly focused religion that focused on the question of compliance and left the question of compassion untouched. See, what the Pharisees did was they were habitual critics, okay? And when we criticize someone else for their supposed violation of God's law, we miss the point. We miss exactly what God expects from us. 
Even more alarmingly, when we do that, we do not imitate Christ, but we imitate the Pharisees when we find fault in everybody else. Because that's what the Pharisees were doing. They were finding fault in Christ. They were finding fault in the disciples. Why? Because it gives them a sense of a convoluted sense of comfort. And it does that with the habitual critics even today. Fault finding gives people a false and convoluted sense of comfort because it focuses on someone else's shortcomings and diverts the attention from our own sinful heart. And that is exactly what these guys were doing here. That is exactly what false religions will do. Church, true religion pursues restoration, not accusation. That's in Galatians 6, verse 1, where Paul says, Brethren, if anyone is caught in a trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness. Each one look into yourself so that you too will not be tempted. See, if those guys were interested in true religion, they would say, Perhaps they're violating a law here. I'm not entirely sure. But if that's the case, instead of accusing, let's try to restore them. But no, there's none of that in false religion. It's outwardly focused. Furthermore, church, true religion pursues peace, not strife. The author of Hebrews says in Hebrews 12, verse 14, Pursue peace with all men and the sanctification without which no one will see the Lord. In Proverbs chapter 20, verse 3, see, they would have known, the Pharisees would have known this proverb here. Keeping away from strife is an honor for a man, but any fool will quarrel. True religion pursues kindness, not hostility. This is what these guys were engaged in. Colossians 3, verse 12, as those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Furthermore, church, true religion pursues forgiveness, not retaliation. Matthew 18, verse 15, if your brother sins, go and show him his fault in private. If these guys were interested in true religion, if these guys had their hearts converted, they would have demonstrated that by going to the disciples privately, even though this was before, presumably, when Christ gave those instructions. But if the heart was in the right place, they would have done that. They would have gone privately. Listen, I, I think you're violating the Sabbath, perhaps. Furthermore, true religion pursues mercy, not vindictiveness. Luke 6, verse 36, Jesus says, Be merciful, just as your Father is merciful. And finally here, church, true religion seeks the approval of God, not the approval of people. Paul says in Galatians 1, verse 10, For am I now seeking the favor of men or of God? Or am I striving to please men? If I were still trying to please men, I would not be a bondservant of Christ. And church, what we have here is an example of people who demonstrated none of these virtues because they were focused on a false religion, an outwardly focused religion. The Pharisees who accused the disciples showed none of this. So that's a good time for us to examine our hearts and ask, is your life known for these virtues? Are you always pursuing restoration, peace, kindness, forgiveness, mercy, and ultimately the approval of God? Or are you focused on accusation, strife, hostility, retaliation, and vindictiveness? Because if you are, friends, now's a good time. Today's a good day to ask God to search your heart and see if there be any wicked way in you and ask Him to transform your heart. Because if you have embraced Christ as your Lord and Savior, it means you have already been transformed. And He is in the process of still transforming you and chiseling your heart, molding your character, refining your life so that you can demonstrate all of these virtues. Why? Because the Bible says He began a good work in you. But if you have not, if he has not begun a good work in you, today's the day to come to Christ. If your heart is unconverted, come to him. He'll give you rest. He promises that. Unfortunately, many people 
we know and in our circles of influence here in our families, perhaps our friends, share the same condition of the Pharisees here. They look and sound religious, even pious from time to time. They may claim affiliation to an evangelical church or they may claim affiliation to a monastery, a mosque or a synagogue or another religious group, but their heart is unconverted. So pray for those people and go share Christ with them so that they can abandon their false system and embrace the true one that Jesus offers. After addressing the question of compliance and the question of compassion in true religion, Jesus concludes his argument by clarifying the question of comprehension. The very last sentence of this entire section here, verse 8, the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. Now, remember, verse 28, 11, 28, when he promises to give rest, the only reason he can do that is because he is the Lord of the Sabbath. He is the Lord of the day of rest, which serves as a perfect illustration for eternal rest that the followers of Christ, people who have been truly born again, will enjoy for eternity. Now, the problem here is that the Pharisees were affirming that they were lords of the Sabbath because they claim the authority to regulate what is done and what shouldn't be done on the Sabbath according to their crazy understanding of the Old Testament. And Jesus says, you are not Lord of the Sabbath. The Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. And because He is the Lord of the Sabbath, He's the only one who can regulate what is lawful and what is not lawful to do on the day of rest. Why? Because He's the one who created it. He's the one who instituted it. The Sabbath exists to fulfill God's purposes, not the other way around. And what a great way to summarize true religion by saying the Son of Man is Lord, just like the Father is Lord. If you have questions or comments, we'd love to hear from you. Our email address is radio at gbcsalem.org. Or you can visit our website, truthwithgrace.org, for more information about our church and this media ministry. And we're always looking for people just like you to join us in spreading the gospel around the world. This broadcast is provided to you at no cost to the generosity of financial and prayer supporters of Truth With Grace. Please feel free to share it, but please don't charge money for it or edit it in any way without the written consent of Grace Baptist Church. Until next time, this is Truth With Grace.